Well, we're going to jump into the sermon series that we are calling All Things New. For those unaware, or perhaps this is new to you, we are currently in the second week of, or the second Sunday after Easter, Easter tide season. Tide just means time. Uh, Easter season isn't just a day that we celebrate on a Sunday. It's actually uh, a whole season, 50-day season that leads us into Pentecost. And one of the things that it reminds us of is that Lent is 40 days of fasting and reflecting on the hardships and sufferings that we journey through uh, in life, in the wilderness. But Easter tide season is 50 days. That means our celebration and joy that comes in the resurrection of our Lord is always greater than the suffering and fasting that we endure in the season of Lent. And in this sermon series, we're talking about what does it mean for, a, for God to make all things new? Revelation 21, the very end of the book of scriptures, Revelation 21 tells us that God is currently involved in making all things new, but what encompasses the all in all things new? Last week, we talked about God making new hearts, and this morning, I've titled my sermon, A New Story, A New Story. God is making a new story in you, in the world, and in our church to ground us there this morning. I'm going to read from Second. Uh, Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 17. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn with me there. I'm going to read. It'll be on the screen for those who don't have scriptures. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. But you should continue following the teachings you learned. You know they are true because you trust those who taught you. Since you were a child and you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise... And that wisdom leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And here's the key for us. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing people what is wrong in their lives, for correcting faults, and for teaching how to live right. Using the scriptures, the person who serves God will be capable having all that is needed to do every good work. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we have come in a very odd expression of faith this morning to hear a word from you. We've come expectant that you are God who speaks and is speaking even now. And we long to be the kinds of people who have ears to listen. So this morning, Father, would you grant us by your grace and mercy ears to hear and eyes to see you and your voice. Speak, O God, for your servants are listening. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. I'm going to turn this fan off because it distracts me a little bit. Sorry. So for those unaware, for those, can you turn me down a little bit, Roy? It's still super hot. For those unaware, um, uh, one side of my family, my dad's side of my family, our family tree, I am the first generation that it was born in the United States of America. My family immigrated here on November 22nd, 1959, from Zambales, Philippines. Uh, my dad was just uh, five years of age at the time, and the reason why I remember that date so clearly is because it is the exact day that my mom was born. 
How crazy is that? November 22nd, 1959, my mom was coming out of the womb and my dad was flying across the Pacific Ocean. It's wild to me. But while the Philippines were a U.S. territory after the war, Filipinos were permitted to join the military in that time. And you, of course, needed to be 18 years of age to enlist into the Navy. And my grandfather lied on his documents at age 17, saying that he was 18 so that he could enlist. He enlisted with a sole intent of sending his family to the United States for a better life than the one that they had in the Philippines. In my life, I only had one conversation with my grandfather about what animated and motivated that in him. Why did you choose to leave behind your mom, your dad, your family, and everyone else to come to this foreign, odd country for you in the middle of the civil rights movement landing in Tennessee, where my family was like, where the heck do we fit in and all of the fighting going on here? Are we with these people, those people? What is going on I was in junior high when I asked him this question. I'll never forget his response. He said, I did it for you, and you should honor that with your life. I've thought about that moment quite a bit throughout the years. I wish I could say that it's like the the thing that animates and motivates my life. Honestly, it's not. But I do wonder from time to time, am I honoring those who came before me with my life? The sacrifices that they made to get our family here, do I honor that with my life? My family's story in some ways has been a way for me to make meaning of my own story, of directing my own story. I don't feel an intense pressure But when you recognize that you're one generation away from third world poverty, you become quite grateful for the life that you have. I'm convinced that we all make meaning of our lives through stories. We narrate our lives through stories to know if we're living the life we're supposed to live or the life that we're not supposed to live, one that honors my family or one that dishonors my family We see this in the story of the American dream, right? Our society has long told the story of the good life, of a successful life. The story goes something like this. You go to junior high and you are well-mannered and you get good grades. Then you go to high school and you get on the uh, honor roll so that you can go to college and get your degree, preferably in some sort of STEM field, right? Science, technology, engineering, or mathematics. Let's go. Amen, Will, right? Then you get married after college, you have your three and a half kids, purchase a house with a white picket fence, and after 25 to 30 years of working in the same uh, uh, company, you retire and play golf for the rest of your life, right? This is the story of the American dream. This is the story that, that we know if we've lived a successful life or not. See, this story has a way of identifying whether or not we're living the good life, a good life, which if you fit into the story, great. But if you didn't, you feel this sense of lack, this sense of emptiness, a sense that, that you ought to be more, you, ought, you should do more. Perhaps you're a single person, not by choice, but by circumstance. You have this sense that you are lacking something in your life because you don't fit into the story. Or perhaps you couldn't have kids And the story you imagined of your life never came to fruition and you feel this sense of failure. You feel as though you aren't living the life that you really long and and desire to live. 
Or maybe you were laid off from a job or never established a career in a high-paying job. And as you talk about it with a sense of shame, you say things like, oh, I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. But maybe, maybe it's not the American story that you feel like you don't fit into or that you do fit into. Maybe it's your family story. Maybe your family story is a story where people stay married no matter what. Perhaps you work in a medical field or they pressure you to work in a medical field and you're supposed to be a doctor, an engineer, and you're like, I'm an artist. (laughs) You're like, whoa, you're a black sheep. You do not fit into this story at all. And perhaps maybe you are just misaligned or depending on how you're aligned or misaligned with the stories that we're trying to live into can give you the sense of pride and success or a sense of lack and failure. Most of you know that I'm in this master's program for marriage and family therapy. There's this way of doing therapy that I've learned in school recently, which I'm I'm resisting every week to not like tell you all the things that I'm teaching because it's so helpful. But there's this one way of doing therapy called narrative therapy that, that tries to identify these stories that we either live into or don't live into that can cause a sense of success or a sense of distress in us. You know, perhaps you're anxious because you feel like a failure because you didn't live up to career expectations. Perhaps you live in this story of guilt because you survived a situation that somebody else didn't survive. And you're like, that, I'm not supposed to be here. That's not the story that should have played out in my life. But whatever it is, you know there's some incongruence with a story that you think you ought to live when you start saying things like, I should have become, I shouldn't be here. I was meant to do blank. I am less because fill in the blank. And I love this framework of thinking about therapy because it feels particularly and uniquely Christian to me. You see, the Christian faith is a storied faith. The revelation of God's truth into the world comes to us in storied form, in a narrative. We call this the Bible. We gather every single Sunday to read part of this story and to reflect and think about part of this story. And the Bible is that story that all Christians are called to narrate our lives within. If you were here last week, you got the whole kit and caboodle, right? From Genesis all the way to Revelation on what the story, the biblical story is all about. It's a story of a God who creates us out of love and joy. It's a story of a God who places people who bear his image into his creation, reflecting his goodness back to him, reflecting his goodness back to one another, and reflecting his goodness back to creation itself. It's a story of how we are unfaithful to do the thing that we were supposed to do, but it's also a story of a God who relentlessly pursues the unfaithful to redeem them so that they might live into the purpose and intention that they were created for And we gather here every Sunday to speak about this story, to speak it into the world, to speak it into the life of our church. And preaching is always an invitation. Come, join the story of God. Allow this story to be the story that gives you meaning, the way that you experience your life. It's an invitation to those who are living into a story of guilt or shame, into a story of forgiveness. It's a story and an invitation to those who are living with a sense of hurt into a story of healing. 
It's an invitation to those who feel unloved into a story of infinite worth. It's an invitation to those who feel despair into a story of hope, an invitation to those who feel like they're at the end of the rope to step into a new chapter, an invitation to those who feel they lack meaning into a story of purpose, an invitation to those who have made their lives about themselves into a story of loving your neighbors as you love yourself, an invitation to those who have enemies to make them friends, an invitation to those who are far from God to be part of the family of God. This is the story of the scriptures. You see, where we've gone wrong often with the Bible and the scriptures so we've often thought about the scriptures as a way to enhance our lives. It's like a, the way I sort of cheekily, cynically describe it is, is we use it like it's a sort of religious self-help book for us, right? And so we come into services like these or we read some of the, the books that are published and they have titles like How to Heal Your Marriage in Five Easy Steps. Because we think that the story of the scripture is here to somehow allow us to do the thing that we want to do. Or we have sermons like becoming a godly man or woman, and we use an acrostic of godly, right? And it's like, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is that you're going to fill in there. But if this was the intention of God with the scriptures, he did a horrible job putting it together, right? If that was the purpose, to try and enhance our lives so that we can live the lives that we want to live, he should have had like, well, here's the relationship section, right? And here's, here's, here's friendships, here's marriage, here's enemies, and you just kind of use some of this wisdom and guidance to kind of get along in your life. Or maybe he could have had a section that was like, this is the wealth section, and this is about money, this is career, these are, these are possessions, and, and now you kind of have this really well-organized thing to help you get along with the life that you want to live. Or here's the service section, and these are better levels of service than others. But this isn't how, how the Bible comes to us. We don't have this topical sense of like, how can I use this for my advantage? We, we get a story. We get a, a story in the scriptures. And the point of the scriptures is to know and inhabit them in, in such a way and, and so well as to give meaning and to interpret the experiences of your life in that story, to make sense of our life as a congregation through the lens of Scripture, through the story of Scripture. Let me give you an example. We're here in worship on Sunday morning. And if you would have been a part of our church like a year ago, two year, probably two years ago, right, before COVID, I can't wait till we can never talk about COVID ever again. We'll be like, oh yeah, you remember? Yeah, I'm gonna tell my grandkids about COVID. They'll be like, what was COVID? You guys did what, right? But two years ago, the story of our church from then to now is that our church has gotten smaller, right? We all sort of feel it in here. We felt it last week. Can I get an amen? Amen. And there's this sense that because we live into a story that bigger is better from the culture around us, there's this sense that we have failed, that we're doing things wrong because we're moving numerically in the wrong direction. But that, <laughs> this is not the story of scripture at all. There's a story in scripture, what we see repeatedly over 
and over and over again is a God who does more with less. From the very beginning, you have this story of, of Jacob and Esau, right? And Esau was this gruff, tough, bearded, hunting, older brother that was supposed to be socially and societally more important in the world. And God says, I'm actually going to use your brother Jacob to bring about my people. Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. That might be a familiar word or people or family to you. But this younger, less impressive, unimportant brother is the one through whom God uses. There's this other story of Gideon and the Midianites in the book of Judges, where the army of God is moving into the promised land and they're supposed to conquer the Midianites. And God comes to Gideon, who's leading God's people at that time, and he says, listen, you have way too many people in your army to go in and conquer those people. And Gideon's like, what? What do you mean? We got <laughs> no, I don't think we do, God. And God's like, no, because if you guys conquer them, what's going to happen is you're going to think you did it, not that I did it. And so you got to get rid of like half of your military. So get rid of half of the military. And then God says like, you still got way too many people to conquer. And God halves their military from tens of thousands to about 300. And God does more with less. There's a story, if we fast forward to, to Jesus' teaching in John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, you're going to produce a lot of fruit. And then there's, we all know that, we're like, yeah, we need to remain in him and he in us. And then Jesus says like, and so what's going to happen actually is I'm going to prune the fruit when it grows so that there's no fruit there anymore. But the reason why that's there is so that more fruit can come. There's this one uh, little story that many of us might be familiar with where Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a what? A mustard seed. And he says, like, that's the smallest of all seeds. It seems very unimpressive because it is unimpressive. But the thing that animates and makes that thing grow is this living God. See, if we step back just for a moment and stop interpreting the life of our church through the story of the world, and we actually step back and we look at our story congregationally in this moment through the story of the scriptures. It's like, oh, wait, hold on. Maybe this is, is this exciting? Is God going to show up? And, and then we're going to have to be like, we did nothing here. God just showed up and did something. Oh, I want to be a part of that story. I experience Sunday morning very differently when I live into that story. You see, to be a student of the scripture is not merely to memorize verses and, and stories. The hope for us is we send our kids to children's church isn't like, hey, memorize the flannel graph that we have going on today. There's this guy Moses, and uh, what did he do? That's not the point, although that's important. The point isn't just to improve your life so that you can get on a little bit better. It's not just to know the events of the scripture. It's not to be able to, to you know, do sword drills and find the book of the Bible and a chapter and a verse quicker than everybody else in the church. The, the, the point of the story is to immerse yourself into knowing the scriptures that you begin to live into the reality of the scriptures, that you make meaning of your life and the events of the world through the story of scripture. You gotta read your Bibles and be familiar with what the story is all about. But here in this church, this is the part that I'm like, ready to preach on this morning. Here in this church, though, we aren't just inviting you into the story of Scripture. 
we're inviting you into the story of this church. On December 10th, 1938, nine people gathered for a prayer meeting. The second story of the apartment at 129 South Santa Cruz Street. And each Thursday evening, they would gather for prayer. This is how our church started. Harper Welch was our first pastor. They formed the church in November 2nd, 1938, within the denomination. We became a legal entity in December 10th. There's an article, it might be in the back over there, where they they posted a story like, hey, uh, in the newspaper, anybody want to come to a prayer gathering? That's how the church started. Come to this address, and we're going to spend some moments in prayer together. The first building that they constructed was the original sanctuary, which is now the youth room. This is a picture of them putting it together. The way that this got going, because the church was so small, was that that small group of nine people, they (laughs) took out second mortgages on their homes to build this chapel, as they called it. And there it is in full once it was completed, building still there. It's beautiful. The doors, I think, are the same exact doors that are still there. In 1948, on the 10-year anniversary of the church, do I have this up there, Corey? Oh, they're, they're, they had pews. Everybody look at the pews and just reflect about how novel and nostalgic that was. By the 10th anniversary of the church in 1948, the bulletin reflects on the, the decade-long history and story of our church They have here, I think I have, you will not be able to read this, but go to the next one. The pastor wrote these words. It's the third paragraph down. He says, our motto is to serve the present age here in Ventura. I love that. We're not thinking too far ahead and we're not stuck in the past. We are here to serve the present age in Ventura. And then he goes on and he says this, we wish to bring Christ to this city We will bend every effort and make every sacrifice to achieve this goal. The future looks bright. The challenge is before us, but we will, underline, move on. In that same bulletin, one more, the mayor of Ventura, Edwin Gardner at the time, wrote a little note there. I don't know if we were just like buddies with Edwin Gardner, But he wrote these words in the second paragraph. He says, the outstanding progress of your church in the past decade has been not without notice in the community. I love that. The decade-long ministry of this church has been noticed by those who are part of our community. I think it was this same year in 48 that our church, Jim Rice, I was talking to Becky about this this week, Jim Rice, who was living in Oxnard and coming to church here, said, you know what? We actually need a church in Oxnard. And so Jim Rice's dad actually built the church there on Saviors. Is that how you say it? Road, that super bright blue building, if you've ever seen it, it, the one that you don't want to claim any sort of like ownership of. Those are our people, though. That's our family church there in Oxnard. Later on in the mid-60s, the Rices then went to Camarillo and they planted our church in Camarillo. That is from the very beginning story of our church. We were like, we're going to be a people who introduce our community and our city and this area to Jesus. We are a people who are on mission. On October 15, 1951, the
the board here at our church, they held a special meeting. I don't know where the meeting was, but they began to discuss building a new sanctuary. They brought in a designer architect who shared some plans with the church board and the board secretary at the time, Ida M. Atterbury. I don't think anybody knows who these people are. Maybe Becky. Becky probably knows. In the meetings, or in the minutes of that meeting, she wrote these words. As he, the designer, spoke, our enthusiasm rose, and we were thrilled with envisioning what could be done. This sanctuary that they had baptized their kids in, the place where maybe some people were married, maybe where they went to the altar and received the saving grace of God for the first time, they said, that was great. But as we look forward, (laughs) we are stirred with enthusiasm at what God might do in the lives of people around us. I think I have, do I have a picture with a bunch of kids? This is one of my favorite photos. Oh my gosh, our church had a bus ministry some of you like old-time Nazarenes, you'll know like, oh yeah, well, the bus ministry, right? And the way that this worked is shocking to, uh, to us modern listeners. You'd have an adult driving around that bus there on the right. Our church is just right behind this, by the way. This is Jordan Avenue. And they would drive around on Sunday morning and they would just go and pick up kids in the neighborhood and bring them to church. And all of these kids, I don't know if I have a picture of this. You have this picture of all these kids and adults who would go and cram into that one chapel for worship. And every time I hear a kid like cry or something, that sort of, especially when it's my own kid, I'm like, shut up, like stop, you are disturbing. Oh, there it is. They all worshiped in that one youth room. There's no way that was according to fire code. But this church from the very beginning was built upon younger generations that our congregation said they need to know Christ. On March 2nd of the following year, in 1952, they broke ground for the sanctuary that we are sitting in today. We stand on their shoulders. On March 25th, 1956, the sanctuary was dedicated. In the first 30 years of this church's life, it went from nine people at a small apartment prayer gathering to 188 people attending Sunday school and 166 church members. What's fascinating to me in those early years, the first half of the life of this church, our Sunday school discipleship attendance far outweighed our worship attendance. People longed to be discipled into Christians. They wanted to be like Christ and they wanted to be together more than they wanted a big gathering. I love that. In 1998, some of you can testify to this. God did powerful things, radical things that were shocking and surprising in the lives of people who are part of this congregation. The church erected a small memorial. You'll see out by the parking lot, there's these stones are sort of hidden by some bushes, unfortunately, as a way of reminding ourselves that God changes people, that God can do radical things. God had been doing radical things from 1938 all the way to 1998. And we, we've been given the baton of this mission and ministry church. When you walked into this church and when you signed up for membership, you were not just signing up to be a part of some church that, you know, is just this generic thing. What you signed up for was to be a part of this particular story, to make these people your family, 
that this story was going to be the story by which we began to interpret and give meaning to the things that we do in our congregation. And as I look through the history of this church, there's three things that stand out to me that I'll just sort of quickly push through here. But the first is this. Our story is a story of missions. Our story is a story of reaching a broken world. Our story is a story that sets first and foremost above all things. The first thing that ought to be first in our church is that we want to bring the gospel and Jesus to people who do not know him. And if we ever become anything other than that, if it ever becomes about the people who are sitting in this room, we are not living into the story of God and we're not living into the story of this church. I love this. <laughs> I've read so many board minutes, it would blow your mind. <laughs> and reading like cursive from the 40s is not the easiest thing in the world. But as I was going through some old minutes this, this uh, past week, there was a, uh, there's this, uh, uh, minutes from a meeting of the Women's Foreign Missionary Society, right, which is now the Nazarene Missions International. Uh, but back in the day, women were like, well, what are, we got to do something, right? We got to do something. So they started this big emphasis on missions, which actually became the global movement of our denomination for missions around the world. It started with a small group of women. But our church had this society meeting here. And in 1947, I love this, they recorded these words at their gathering. After prayer, Viola, which feels like it's straight out of 1947. After prayer, Viola read the scripture of being fishers of men. She gave a good talk on ways to win souls, saying what one must have patience, be able to stand disappointment, and keep self out of sight. That is, if we're going to be a people who are on mission... If we lean back into our story of, of how our church has long done mission, it means that we got to be patient, we got to endure, we got to stick with it. There's got to be an element of perseverance. We got to be ready that there's going to be moments of disappointment. When you invite your friend and they're like, yeah, I'll be there, and they don't show up, that happens a lot. There's going to be people who maybe don't want to know Jesus, that's okay. And you got to keep yourself out of sight. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about the mission of God breaking into the world and lives of people around us. And then they write, and the reward of that, the reward of patience and standing disappointment and not being about ourselves, and the reward of that, they write, is the joy of winning souls. Oh, if that would be our joy. Not that we got pews instead of chairs. That's not somehow our joy. That's not the point. The joy comes in people knowing Jesus. The second thing that is a part of our story is discipleship. That we are a people who not just come as passive observers on a Sunday morning, but we're actively engaged in knowing the word and organizing our lives in such a way that we look like Jesus. In the coming weeks, we're starting these home groups, and that's the whole point of them, discipleship, to give you the opportunity to be people who organize in your lives in such a way that the grace of God can do a new work in you. And the third thing is this, prayer, 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 prayer is a part of our story as a church. It started in that apartment, December 10th, 1938. And down here at the altars have been a place where people, even this morning, people have come to be with God, to cast their cares upon him, to to ask God, I want to live into a new kind of story. Can you do that in me? 
These altars and this place have been a place where, where we've prayed and longed for God to do a new thing in our church, and they are open to you this morning. The danger, though, let me just say this. Oh, listen, faster church, I preach too long. The danger, though, in looking at the story of our church is that we think that what we ought to do then is we got to get a bus ministry now because that's how they did it back then. No, that's not the point of the story. <laughs> the point of the story is not, well, everyone's got to cram into my bedroom now because it's sort of like that apartment that our church started and we're going to pray. Like, no, that'd be weird. That would be odd. The point of the story is to keep the mission of God in focus, to value kids in the same way that we did, to value prayer. And that might look differently. We might have chairs instead of pews. Maybe you don't do an altar, maybe you do in your chair, whatever it is. But those things is a story that we have to lean into this morning. It's a story that if we're ever going to participate with God's mission in the world, that it's going to come about. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to, before we come to the table this morning, I just want to create space for you and our church to pray. I desperately want to see people know Jesus. I desperately want to be on mission. I desperately want to see each of your lives be transformed through this process of discipleship that God's grace would make you new, make your heart new, make our church new, make us as a people new. And I want to invite you this morning as we sing this next song just to spend some moments in prayer. Use this song as a way of praying perhaps or perhaps you come to the altars, come to the front rows and sit and just spend some moments longing and expressing to God your desire to live into his story, your desire to live into our story, our family story as a church this morning. Afterwards, I'll come up and I'll lead us through uh, our communion meal together.